we are here. And actually, um, Charlotte is, it's, it's Charlotte's homily day, but I do have a few words about spiritual growth for you. Um, something I've been thinking a lot about. Last week I went through our new vision statement and counted the times we use certain major nouns. This is the vision statement, of course, that will be voted on today. Uh, uh, a masterwork, I do believe. We used the word spiritual in some variation five times in the vision statement. The only noun that gets more hits than spiritual is the word congregation, which shows up six times. Spiritual. In our vision, we mention spiritual inspiration, spiritual grounding, spiritual practice, spiritual journey, and, of course, spiritual growth. That's the that's in the topic sentence of a central paragraph. We seek lifelong spiritual growth. This causes certain questions to arise in my mind. What do we mean by spiritual would be one. I like Parker Palmer's definition, which I found just last week. He says, by spiritual I mean the diverse ways we answer the heart's longing to be connected with the largeness of life. The diverse ways we answer the heart's longing to be connected with the largeness of life. That's broad. That covers meditation and labyrinth walking and friendship groups and more. It covers peace marching and sock collecting and sacred parenting and making great music. There are so many diverse ways to answer the longing. And here's another question. What do we mean by growth? How do we know how we're doing and whether we're growing? This makes me think of a list. It's a list we've mentioned from time to time here. It comes from the Reverend Kendall Gibbons, and it's a list of capacities and abilities that are fruits of spiritual growth. Qualities of spiritual growth and maturity would be another way to say it. These are what we practice and what we hope to gain. The list goes, the ability to enter into a covenant the ability to celebrate and to mourn, an attraction to beauty, mercy, and justice, fluency in the use of metaphor, a capacity for intensity and ambiguity, the ability to repent or change, connection to the earth and other creatures, constant awareness and acceptance of mortality, ability to absorb and transform suffering. Spiritual growth, how do we track it or do we try? If spiritual growth is so essential to us, should we have a way, an institutional, intentional way to work on it? You know, a place in our church structure to notice and name it, a department of spiritual growth, because it isn't the job of professional ministers alone. It can't just happen from the pulpit. Here are some words from John Weston of the Unitarian Universalist Association from his bold and honest essay called How Long Should a Ministry Last? John Weston is our association settlement director. He knows and helps congregations looking for ministers and ministers looking for a congregation. He says, How long should a ministry last is a question that makes sense only in the context of the purpose of ministry. And the purpose of ministry, of course, depends on the purpose of church. I believe that the purpose of church is spiritual growth, spiritual growth of individual congregants, spiritual growth of the congregation. 
Speaking now as a congregant, he says, which on most Sundays I am, I'd say that sometimes my spiritual growth needs to be fostered and sometimes it needs to be provoked. Nurture and needling, we need them both. Because spiritual growth is caught and not taught, it must be done by example. The minister, John says, needs to be raising and responding to questions of life and death, good and evil, the individual and the collective, intimacy and distance, justice and injustice. The minister needs to be deeply engaged in questions of the spirit and core issues of being human, and the congregation needs to be open to this and eager. Here's more from John Weston. He writes, I've said that the purpose of churches is the spiritual growth of the congregation. That makes church sound all very positive and forward-looking. A not-so-nice way to say the same thing is that the purpose of the church is to diminish the distortions in our narcissism. He says, we Unitarian Universalists broke away from upper-class Calvinism and working-class baptism because we refused to acknowledge innate depravity and original sin. I'm, having, I'm hearing echoes of Mark last Sunday. You might say that was our first mistake. Just as the Calvinists and Baptists couldn't see anything but depravity, we don't acknowledge anything but perfectibility. As I understand the human condition, we're both wrong. No, we aren't utterly powerless, and no, we are not capable of consistent Christ-likeness either. So we go to church to be nurtured and needled into ratcheting down our self-concern and our self-righteousness. And I repeat, pulpit and precept are not enough, and certainly the minister alone is not enough. The whole congregation needs to be engaged. John says there are many goals a congregation may adopt that have some connection with spiritual growth. A congregation, he says, may be a staunch social justice organization. I'm quoting now. It may be a warm and caring community. It may be a social club or a glee club or a literary salon. It may be well endowed either in liquid wealth or real estate and wanting more. Each of these goals is a noble goal as long as it is a means by which the congregation pursues spiritual growth, as long as the goal does not become an end in itself. When such a goal becomes an end in itself, it also becomes a means by which the congregation avoids going out onto that boundary between the sacred and the profane that all ministry and all who minister are called to walk. End of quote. In my time away, I plan to ponder this charge, talk about it, listen about it, dream about it, and also get specific and bring back what I can. Till summer then, you are in my prayers. May you thrive. I think it was Dag, <clears throat> was Dag Hammerskjold who wrote, I don't know who or what put the question. I don't even know when it was put. I don't remember answering. But at some moment, I said yes to someone or something. And from that time, I've been certain that existence is meaningful and that life in self-surrender has a goal. 
People ask me quite often why I chose to become a minister. And I usually tell them that I ran out of ways not to become one. I first thought about becoming a minister in my teens, but I decided I didn't fit the mold, and the world would agree with me. I was a good student. I knew I could learn enough to pass exams, but I could not imagine, and still could not, ever becoming wise enough to try to coach other people through the promises and perils of life. But most of all, I couldn't imagine myself being well enough behaved (laughs) to fit my own preconception of what ministers were like. I also couldn't imagine having a life with so little fun in it. I hadn't met enough ministers. So when did I decide to become a minister? Was it when I was on the retreat planning committee for the liberal religious youth in my teens? Or was it when I began teaching church school in my early 20s? Or when I was chair of the district religious education committee? Maybe it was while I was chairing the annual canvas committee. No? That didn't do it? (laughs) Or maybe it was when I attended my first continental conclave of religious educators, or perhaps when I attended the first Meadville Midwinter Conference in Chicago, or maybe it was that leadership development conference that I went to in northern Ontario, or maybe it was when the congregation in Winnipeg chose me to be one of their chaplains. And I began officiating at weddings and funerals. And I began leading worship four or five times a year. In my mind, it was when I finally decided to begin formal preparation for the ministry. But hey, I don't know who or what put the question I don't even know for sure when it was put, and I don't remember answering. At some moment, I said yes. And since then, I've known that life has meaning. Today's anthem, it's funny, but the bells don't ring. And you'd think that you're going to hear a choir sing. But no, it's quiet. There are no exploding fireworks. Where's the roaring of the crowd when a decision like that gets made? Where's the roaring of the crowd with the fateful decisions that we each make? that turn our lives forever. When those puppies' eyes convince you that it's all right to bring the dog into the house. (laughs) Most momentous decisions in our lives are like that. 
Last week, I heard Greg Morgenstein, author of Three Cups of Tea, One Man's Mission to Promote Peace, One School at a Time, on NPR. Well, he made a decision. He made a decision to summit the most challenging mountain in Himalayan mountain he could. He did it to work out his grief over his sister's untimely death. He didn't make the summit, even though his two companions did. He did become lost. He did end up wandering for days. He stumbled upon an inhabitant of the mountains who took him to a village where he recuperated and said that he would help them build a school. They didn't think he'd come back, but he did. And now his life's mission is to promote peace through building schools. Where were the fireworks? Where were the crowds? Mohammed Yunus, when did he answer the call? He was speaking here this week, thanks to Lynn Elling's work, last year's receiver of the Nobel Peace Prize. Was he called to change the world? To bring the most likely, the most hopeful means of eradicating poverty that the world has seen yet? Did he choose to do that when he thought he'd study economics? Or when he decided to become an economics professor? He told the story in his book, Banker to the Poor. He recalled in 1974, when he was teaching economics at Chittagong University in southern Bangladesh, the country experienced a terrible famine in which thousands starved to death. We tried to ignore it, he said, but then skeleton-like people began showing up in the capital, and soon the trickle became a flood, and hungry people were everywhere. Often they sat so still that no one could be sure whether they were alive or dead, and they all looked alike, men, women, children. Old people looked like children. Children looked like old people. And the thrill that he'd once experienced studying economics and teaching his students elegant theories that could supposedly cure societal problems soon left him empty. And as the famine worsened, he began to dread his own lectures. Quote, Nothing in the economic theories I taught reflected the life around me. How could I go on telling my students make-believe stories in the name of economics? I needed to run away from these theories from my textbooks and discover real-life economics of a poor person's existence. 
So he went to a nearby village, and he learned the economic realities of the poor. He wanted to help, and he cooked up many plans, and most of them failed. But one idea was more successful than the rest. Offering people tiny loans for self-employment, Grameen Bank was born. An economic revolution had begun. He reversed conventional thinking. He focused on women borrowers. He dispensed the requirement with the requirement of collateral, and he extended loans only to the very poorest of the borrowers. In fact, to qualify, a villager has to demonstrate that her family owns less than one half of an acre of land. Well, the Green Bank has provided $4.7 billion to 4.4 million families in rural Bangladesh. Over 1,400 branches. Grameen provides services in 51,000 villages, covering three-quarters of all of the villages in Bangladesh. And it's a system based on mutual trust and the enterprise and the accountability of millions of women villagers. And now there are over 250 institutions in over 100 countries operating microcredit programs based on this model. I wonder, I wonder when he knew what his call was. I suspect that he'd say that he isn't really sure who or what put the question or even exactly when he said yes. But he answered the call. Our calls to service, our calls to life, are not just to professional ministry. They're not just to the heroes of this world. Our calls to life are tied to our spiritual growth. Our calls are seldom loud or clear. One decision leads to another, and then to another, and our paths will take unexpected twists and turns as we open our hearts and our heads and our minds to the urgings of the universe. Our spiritual ancestors were the extreme radical fringe of the Protestant Reformation, insisting on the priesthood and the prophethood of all believers, that we are all children of the divine, and the divine speaks to everyone. The priesthood speaks and learns, and the prophet speaks and does and learns. It's another way of saying that each of us is called, because each of us 
is open to the wisdom of the universe and the community, each of us does have that spark of divinity. Answering the call means accepting both priestly and prophetic freedom and responsibilities. It means not expecting choirs or bells or applause of thousands. It means living our faith. It means faithfully living. There are more than one ways to be a minister. We all are ministers when we answer a call. We all are ministers when we listen to the universe and our hearts. Clint Wayland wrote, I met a kindly old man who claimed he was an artist. I asked to see his paintings. He had none. For sculpture, he had none. For poetry, he had none. Loudly, I demanded, show me proof. And he gazed into my eyes. I saw love. Then he hugged me gently. I felt love. Here was a true artisan, an artist of life, every moment creative. Artists of life. That's what we're all called to be, agents of creation, redemption, salvation, solace. We are primarily human beings. May we be a people who live our own calling with each other. May we be artists of life, ministers for and with each other. And may we answer the call by trusting and caring enough to lift and to lean, to reprimand and support. May we minister to one another in such a way that our lights will rise and warm and brighten the darkness in all of the corners of our souls and this world. So be it.